0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, University of Michigan musicologist and American culture professor Mark Clegg talks about his book, Oh Say Can You Hear, a cultural biography of the Star-Spangled Banner. This book about America's national anthem was published by WW Norton in June 2022. I began this interview with Mark Clegg by asking him why he chose to call his book a cultural biography.
1: What I was trying to capture was really the sense that the song was a kind of living witness to history, living in the sense that it changed over time, that it wasn't a moribund or static, you know, icon that didn't take on new meanings or new forms. And so I was trying to capture this as a kind of living witness to American life. And one of the things I think this was an amazing challenge to me of this book was it, you know, it's really a history of a song, but it's a history of the country. I mean, it's, the song was written in 1773, the original melody anyway, and, you know, Key's lyric is from 1814. And then, you know, the most recent lyric that I know of is by Amanda Gorman, you know, the poet, you know, just responding to the Highland Park shooting in July 4th of this year. And so there's a way in which the song continues to be present for these sort of pivotal moments in American life, these sort of happenings that people want to comment on and bear witness to. And so I think that also impacted the way I wrote the book. Like I was really trying to write a book that was a smart, accurate, fact-based, research-based, archival-based book with lots of cool new information, but was also super accessible. And so I thought about it as like storytelling, like writing a play or a script for a movie. That's another reason I think the biography idea came out, because I was thinking about character, you know, not only the various historical figures like, you know, Abraham Lincoln or Colin Kaepernick or Francis Scott Key, but also thinking of the song as a kind of you know, historical figure that traveled through American history and responded and resonated with the times.
0: And in your prologue, you indicate that you decided to explore this American anthem both chronologically and thematically. So can you explain why you decided to use those different approaches?
1: Yeah. So the book is broken up into you know, nine different chapters with the prologue and a postlude. And each one of those chapters has its own arc. You can read them individually based on a certain theme, like the writing of the lyric or the creation of the music or the banner at war, the banner in Black Lives. Those are all sort of those thematic chapters. And um, I was trying to find a way to just to, to balance all those issues. And I really wanted to foreground the ideas so that the sort of fastest way to, and the easiest way to organize writing for me is to to deal with what came first and what came last. And I think you know readers are used to reading things in chronological order and thinking about sort of the cause and effect. And so I was I was trying to deliver on that expectation but also just raise awareness of certain ideas that can get buried if you're just dealing with the chronology. I mean, not only did I write a book about a single song, but actually there are books that were written before mine about a single song. Going back to, to 1914, the Park Service put out a big book. There's a book by Mark Ferris about the Star Spangled Banner that came out for the 200th anniversary of the song in 2014. And, you know, all of them are valuable contributions. And, and building on their work allowed me to really focus on the thematic analysis and to foreground things like how does the music contribute to the story of the star spangled banner and people complain that it's too hard to sing but you know if you look at it from a little distance this is one of the most successful melodies in world history i mean this melody has thrived for more than two centuries and we still sing it maybe arguably sing it more today than ever before right it's at every single sporting event every civic event you know you hear the star spangled banner a lot and if the music was bad if the music was a problem that would not be true so there's something about this music delivering on this notion of american freedom and heroism and sort of you know bold independence and so by having a whole chapter that focuses on music which basically no one had really talked about that much before um, that allowed me to really bring that to the fore and, and emphasize that for the reader i tried to like strike that balance and i hope it worked
0: I think so (laughs) so in terms of the music some people may not realize that the melody of this anthem was written by a british composer so how does this melody go from the origins in england to becoming the american anthem
1: yeah that's a fascinating story And, and one i think i actually figured out in a more detailed way than anybody before The song originates with a musician's club in London, England, called the Anacreontic Society, founded in 1766. And basically, this was like a hugely successful club, and it got more and more popular. And uh, as their popularity grew, their membership grew, they wanted a theme song. So their club president wrote this text, and they actually hired a popular song composer of the day named John Stafford Smith to set the president's lyric to music. And so that created the song that we know today as the Star Spangled Banner. It created that melody. It was originally known as the Anacreontic Song, and it's named after the Greek poet Anacreon, and who's a lyric poet and you know wrote songs, but also is part of this sort of classical learning and you know emphasis on sort of intellectual public life. And I it's not an accident, I think, that he's a Greek poet, because it's it's a time in England where you're transitioning from a culture based largely around the king and the court, and then getting into more of the, the public sphere. And so the Anacrantic Society is sort of like a high class, bourgeois, merchants, you know, lawyers, doctors kind of club. So they're, they're wealthy people who are making amateur music. And they named themselves after this Greek poet, in part because the Greek poet was cool. But I think it it ties into this kind of like, Ideas of republicanism and sort of self-determination, democracy, like all the things that we think of, like democracy coming from the Greeks, that's some of the energy around these club members. They're trying to create their their own world that's not stuck in the, the world of the kings and the queens. But they make music and they make what we would call classical music today. It's like string quartets and symphonies and songs with harpsichord accompaniment. And so it's those... An song is sometimes called a drinking song. And it it, it certainly was an all men's club because that's what they did back then. And uh, they got together and created brotherhood and fellowship around this sort of fraternity of musicians.
0: But then how does it come to America and eventually become what we know as the Star Spangled Banner?
1: Well, one of the questions I get all the time is like, why is the Star Spangled Banner so hard to sing? So part of it is that it's this club song, and they wanted to show off their talents, right? So they didn't want a, an easy song to sing. They wanted a really impressive, virtuosic song to sing. And they also, among their members, had these superstar singers that were actors from what's called the West End in England. But it's, it's you could think of them like Broadway singers today. They're actor singers, but they're super talented and very charismatic and used to being on stage. And so it was those actors who were honorary members of the Anacrantic Society who would sing the club song to sort of kick off the last portion of their meetings. And so this really skilled singer would show off how good the club members were by singing the solo. And then actually there's an added part to that original song where the the membership of the club actually echoes back the last two lines. So in the 19th century, that last line, O oh say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or land of the free and the home of the brave, that's in Key's lyric, was sung twice. First by a soloist who was really talented, could hit the high notes, and second by the crowd that would echo back and affirm what was being said by the soloist. With Francis Scott Key, it was meant for a talented individual singer, and then the crowd would echo back those last two lines.
0: So really it was a call and response.
1: It's a call and response, yeah. And that was important to it becoming popular in the young United States. So it was a group of these same actors, you know, who were singing the song for anacrionic society meetings. They came over to the United States with an early theatrical troupe, and they uh, put on these gala evenings sort of spoofing British high society and they would pretend like they were at an anachronic society event, and they would really egg on the whole drunkenness theme and play that up. But in this theatrical play, they would close with the anachronic song, like it would get everybody on their feet, the audience would sing back, you know, it'd be the rousing climax. And so that tune became popular in the early United States from basically Charleston all the way up to New York and Boston. And then other lyricists picked up on the tune and this call and response ritual and said, you know, this would be great for political song. Like we can write a song about, you know, campaign lyric for Thomas Jefferson, and we can say vote for Jefferson. And then the whole crowd echoes back vote for Jefferson. Like it so it builds consensus builds agreement. But those earliest songs were actually pretty political. So it's pretty amazing that there was this kind of like, incredible literature and sort of cacophony, if you will, of competing ideas resounding through this melody. And it was super common cultural practice in the 19th century. It's often called the broadside ballad tradition, or I sometimes call it the newspaper ballad tradition, because broadsides are newspapers. And in a sense, these are early TikToks or tweets. You know, you you have a set of lyrics to be sung to a melody, you publish that in a newspaper, and then it gets picked up from Charleston gets picked up in Washington, D.C., gets picked up in Arlington, Virginia, you know, sort of travels from town to town and goes viral, if you will. Um, So that was how Francis got Key's Lyric became popular. It was first published in Baltimore, and then it got picked up by several dozen other newspapers and sort of carried throughout the United States. Um, There's some weird things about Key's Lyric. I mean, one is that it's really pretty abstract. I mean, it focuses on the symbol of the flag. So most of these lyrics that are written for political purposes are topical so they refer to like Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln or you know the specific political candidate or they refer to a specific general or you know war hero of a particular battle but they're they always have proper names in them and when they have proper names in them they become specific to an individual event so Francis Scott Key is you know in the Patapsco River observing the bombardment of Fort McHenry in September of 1814 he sees the next morning that our flag is still there and he knows that the nation has been saved that the british didn't take the fort and run up their own flag um so he responds to this with a kind of patriotic fervor saying you know this gives me hope for the whole country the british have been on our shores for you know months and months and harassing our towns and exposing american weakness maybe this is the moment for the country to come together and unify you know, and for Key be more pious, like it was a call to recognize that God had just saved the nation. For him, it's a it's sort of a protest song from the beginning, right? He wants these things to happen, and he doesn't see them in his world. And so he writes a song to try to construct that reality.
0: But who is Francis Scott Key? I mean, is he a musician? Was he known for his uh, musical prowess or lyric creation? Who was he?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's remembered today as only the author of The Star Spangled Banner, pretty much. He was a, a political insider, a lawyer who had a very successful career. He moved to Washington, D.C. in 1805, was originally born in Maryland in 1779. So I, I think of him as a kind of founding son of the nation because he's that generation. You know, his father was one of the American revolutionaries, and then he is a lawyer in the, the nation's capital early in his history, sort of putting, you know, if you will, the words of the Constitution into action by fighting for different issues in court. So he fought a lot of cases up through the Supreme Court. But he's a player. I mean, he's in Andrew Jackson's kitchen cabinet, an advisor to the president, but he never runs for office himself. I mean, I think he had 11 kids. And so I I don't know this for a fact, but it always strikes me he couldn't afford to be a politician, right? Because being a politician doesn't pay well. He had to make enough money to support all his kids. But he was, he was always like a step away from power. But, you know, being an educated man in this era meant that you often participated in sort of amateur literary circles. And he, he did that. And so writing new lyrics to old melodies to create these broadside ballads was something that people of his sort of social standing did. And he clearly had a talent for it, an interest for it. He wrote almost a dozen songs, um, including a lot of church hymns. Um, he wrote an earlier patriotic song using the Anacreontic melody, and you know that was sort of how he made a name for himself as well as a young lawyer by writing these songs for parties in Washington D.C. So he's an interesting figure, and and I think you know digging into his own personal biography and his conflicted relationship with freedom and slavery was one of the the primary motivations of really digging into the book.
0: Yeah. Um, Obviously, there's controversy about the song lyrics in general, but specifically about the third verse where he talks about the hireling and the slave. So can you talk about what the controversy is over that particular verse, but also about the lyrics in general?
1: So the phrase hireling and slave is in the third verse of his lyric? And when you look at the today it's really shocking like well how could the national anthem have a reference to people who were enslaved how can this be a song of unity when it's talking about something so alienating and divisive i think francis scott key was trying to write a song of unity and so i've tried to look beyond the surface of that word and try to understand what it might have meant in 1814 and i sort of come up with three approaches depending on who's reading it so if you're if you're an actual enslaved person or um, an abolitionist in 1814, you certainly saw the irony of a song about freedom, the land of the free, where people actually weren't free. And so one of the possible references of the hireling enslaved, which is really a reference to the British enemy, um, were the colonial marines who were formerly enslaved men who escaped slavery and fought um, loyally on the British side. And were fortunately rewarded by that by the British who who released them from slavery. Um, but that's probably not what Francis Key was referring to. I think that the word um, hireling and slave was really contrasting the the American good guys with the British bad guys. So the British bad guys were hirelings. They were paid soldiers. And then they were slaves in that they were doing the bidding of King George. And so you have to remember that the American Revolution and the War of 1812, which is sometimes called the Second War of American Independence, were about breaking away from England and King George. And King George was actually the king in both wars. And so when Francis Scott Key is saying, no refuge can save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight and the gloom of the grave, I think he's talking about the British soldiers who were paid mercenaries and vassals to King George. The other thing that's curious about it, and that I'm sort of the first one to really dig into, is it's a little bit weird that that phrase is singular, the hireling and slave. Generally speaking, when Francis Scott Key was stuck aboard ship three days after the battle writing his lyric, he had zero information about what happened in the battle. But one little fact that he learned was that Major General Robert Ross of the British side had been killed by an American sniper. And Major Ross ordered the burning of the federal buildings in Washington, D.C., which, of course, is Francis Scott Key's home. And he's the one who was leading the ground attack on the women and children and community of Baltimore. And so I think when he says the hireling enslaved, that he was thinking very specifically of Major General Ross, who experienced the terror of flight and the gloom of the grave because he was shot by an American sniper and then died of his wounds. Um, So it's an important part of what it means to understand America. And I think in a sense, the Star Spangled Banner becomes a window into that complicated, conflicted, contradictory time. And, And Key is no different. I mean, he doesn't fall clearly into sort of the good guy, bad guy camp, at least in my mind. One of the parts of his story that's not well known is that as a lawyer, he fought over 106 cases on behalf of Black men, women, and children to be freed from unjust enslavement. So how do you square the circle of a guy who owned people and also fought for people's freedom?
0: How did he justify that?
1: One of the challenges of understanding Key is he he sort of hides his own opinions. He is one of the founders of something called the American Colonization Society, which is the, the group that worked to get slave owners to voluntarily emancipate their slaves and then free them and have them moved, quote unquote, back to Africa. And of course, they couldn't go back to a place they had never been, right? Because these were people who were born in the United States. They were Americans. But that was the the compromise of the time. For Francis Scott Key, that was a pragmatic solution. Like, I think he was looking for a peaceful end to slavery where nobody got hurt. Of course, that was impossible. You know, his whole thing was you have to, to buy someone out of slavery and then free them. And so he did that first in 1811. So three years before he wrote the song The Star Spangled Banner, he and a law partner actually purchased an infant girl and release her to her mother. Um and, and so I don't know what Francis Kaki really had in his heart. I mean, he said that slavery was evil, and he said that he was, you know, trying to protect people from poverty by continuing to own them. So he's sort of mired in the moral compromises of his age. And Francis Key I think, tried to do something, even if it didn't work.
0: You said a bit earlier that he tried to keep his views to himself. So with that in mind, and the fact that he was a lawyer and had to keep certain things close to the chest when he was dealing with cases, how do you as a researcher and a writer find this material? And where do you go to find it so that you can then, you know, incorporate it into your book?
1: The fantastic thing I guess that's that's available to us today as researchers is to have both the power of the internet and the power of the archive. Like so a lot of what I tried to do was to go back to original documents and to look at the actual pieces of paper like the records of these court cases um, in the District Court in Washington DC where the records are pretty complete. And so there actually was a, another historian, um, William Thomas, at the University of Nebraska, who did a project with some of his his students to digitize all of the district court records. And so, while I was writing my book, they suddenly became available, and I could, you know, people had mentioned offhand like, well, key volunteer disservices to free this this one African American man, or this family, or he lost this case. But nobody had ever really put all of the information in one place. And and suddenly, th- these things were publicly available.
0: Don't you love it when that
1: happens? I know. It was incredible. And, you know, now you can go on newspapers.com or, you know, Ancestry, I think, connects to this, or the Chronicling America, which is a newspaper database run by the Library of Congress, and you can do keyword searches for, you know, anything. And so you can type in the word Tune, Star-Spangled Banner, or Tune in Acrion in Heaven, And find these parallel lyrics that are sung to this melody. And so I had the benefit of sort of being trained as an old school historian, like going into the archives, talking to archivists. Archivists are like incredible, you know, assistants in in doing research. Like they know their collections and they know where the cool stuff is hiding. So you talk to them and they're really experts in their materials. And then to have the ability really to search not everything because things are, you know, slowly trickling into these databases and of course some stuff is lost but the power to be able to search hundreds of thousands of newspapers allowed me to catalog these hundreds of alternate lyrics that basically were hiding in plain sight but that no one was ever able to wrangle into you know a a comprehensive
0: yes then in terms of the research process how long did it take and given the origins of the song Did you go to England to deal with any archival material there?
1: Yeah, I did get to go to England to find the grave of John Stafford Smith, which is actually sort of anonymous. Um, The whole graveyard has been turned into a school playground, and there's just a bunch of, there's an old church and a a bunch of headstones sort of lined up against the wall. Um, But there is a big monument to him in Gloucester Cathedral where he was a, a choir boy and his father was the sort of head music master. But yeah, going to England and, and looking into the history of the anachronistic song and these kind of music clubs still exist in London today. There's still this tradition of, of social clubs. So that was, was really cool. I think that those kind of travels and starting to see the anthem from different perspectives has been really, really key to my work.
0: How long was your research process? Oh,
1: well, the book was really inspired by my teaching of a Introductory first year class for music majors here at the University of Michigan School of Music Theater and Dance on the history of American music. So studying music in our own lives is what this class focuses on. And so one question is like, what's American music at all? Because so many different cultures and you know have collided here in the United States. And so I start the class off by playing Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock in 1969. Because I figure, well, the national anthem must be American music. So let's Try to think more deeply about that and that his performance just probably remains my favorite of all time i mean it's it's just sort of this incredibly complex marriage of patriotism and protest that at on one hand is calling out the the civil rights movement and the violence necessary to demand equality and then the violence in vietnam which is also happening in the late 60s sort of framed within this this larger really optimistic statement about the potential for America to sort of rise up and be different. And I think when Jimi Hendrix looked out over the crowd at Woodstock, he saw young people sort of coming together and asserting their power. And so I think there's a lot of his Woodstock performance that's also really celebratory and hopeful. It's not just protest, it's patriotism and protest. So digging into that, and I, you know, I've been teaching that course for like 20 years. And um, of course, I try to get my students to ask really interesting questions, and and they started asking things like, well, where does this song come from, and what does it mean, and who is Francis Scott Key, and why is this word slave in the third verse, and what's going on, and so that sort of led me down this rabbit hole, and at least a decade of pretty solid research, you know, interrupted by other other activities and other projects.
0: Yeah, and. In your book, you not only highlight the Jimi Hendrix version of The Star-Spangled Banner, but you talk about some other memorable and not so memorable performances, like Whitney Houston's Super Bowl performance. And of course, on the other end, the terrible performance by Roseanne Barr. So how did you decide which performances to highlight?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of it was just the performances I love, you know, I just, the ones I respond to really emotionally, I think it's sort of tricky to write about music in a way that, that everybody can understand and connect to. And so I really, in my writing, I try to sort of trace my own emotional journey with melody and harmony and lyric to talk about the the power of music to communicate, you know, sort of in this, this deeply personal, but also sort of universally human way. And for me, you know, Whitney Houston is probably the epitome of that. I mean, just her version comes across as as incredibly powerful, incredibly personal, sincere, but also, you know, brought really the whole country together at a critical time. It was at the very beginning of the first Gulf War, the Super Bowl um, 25 in 1991, and you know, many people talk about that as the greatest anthem performance ever. And what's really curious to me about that is that musically, it's actually a pretty non-traditional version. I mean, Whitney's arranger adds an extra beat to every single measure, and it allows her voice to have extra time to really sort of soar and expand, to fill sort of the the spiritual void, if you will, with her passion. For me, it's a kind of claimed, you know, that that strikes through the centuries and goes back to this question of slavery. Like, here's a, a black woman in America who's saying, I'm here, I belong, this is my country too. And I can I can reshape this this world to represent me too, and so it's incredibly powerful. So I just sort of responded to that and tried to explain that. Um, you know, I talk about Igor Stravinsky's version, uh, Jose Feliciano's version, Roseanne Barr. I, I had tried to avoid writing about Roseanne Barr actually for years. Part of it is I remember when that happened. It was 1990. It was a San Diego um, Padres game, and and this was just like a huge national scandal. Not so much because how bad she was saying, but because of the way she behaved while she was singing. As I wrote and learned more and more about that performance, I think she just started too high and she ran out of vocal range. And so when she got to Rocket's Red Glare, her voice just sort of shredded and shrieked. And so she just went into character and tried to make a joke out of her performance because she she sang it so badly. And then that just went south on her. You know, it's just as she doubled down, then the whole crowd turned against her and booed her and the... And the the country really turned against her and found that it was an intentional insult and so you know I, I guess you learn things by digging into the into the story,
0: yeah and you know as a musicologist, obviously it's your your job and your passion to study and dissect and write about music and its impact but how do you write about a form an art form that's meant to be heard and not meant to be dissected on a page
1: well some of it is is sort of Deep repeated listening. Like, I listened to the Jimi Hendrix version and the Whitney Houston version and even the Roseanne Barr version, like hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, trying to sort of respond to my own reactions and and give those to words. And I think one of the things, you know, that I tell my students is it's okay to be obvious. Like, I think sometimes when people write about art, they think they need to have, you know, all this music theory training or all this sort of theoretical knowledge. And really music, you know, it touches us viscerally, physically, touches us emotionally. And we can use words like happy and sad and fast and slow and loud and soft, you know, really sort of obvious words and start to try to wrap adjectives that capture our experience. And as you do that more and more, I think the one thing I learned about writing from this book was the importance of rewriting. And I think what made my writing, I think, pretty effective in this book from what people have told me, you know, they find the storytelling, you know, compelling. They, they find it understandable, even if they don't know a lot about music or history. But it's still got a lot of detail and a lot of lot of storytelling in it. But it's, it's that I just rewrote and rewrote. And I gave drafts to friends. And I said, you know, tell me what you think. And, you know, I would be all excited, thinking like, oh, they're going to say this is brilliant. And this is so vivid. And and then they would come back to me, like with their eyes crossed and be like, I don't know what you're trying to say. And like, it didn't make any sense. Like, what do you mean by she put an extra beat in every measure? Like, I don't understand. And so then I had to sort of go back to the drawing board and find simpler and clearer ways to say it. And so it's really, you know, trying and trying again, I think is is the secret, but trust your reactions when you're writing about art. You know, I think art is meant to communicate with everybody and music, I think maybe is the most successful of the arts in that sense. I mean, our soundtrack of our lives is just constantly has music in the background and just put words to your own reactions and don't worry about being right or wrong. Just be true to you. And then I think eventually you, you get closer and closer to describing things in a way that resonates with a lot of people.
0: That was University of Michigan musicologist and author Mark Clegg talking with me about his book, Oh, Say Can You Hear, a cultural biography of the Star Spangled Banner published by W. W. Norton in June 2022. We recorded this interview via Zoom on September 16th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.